morning, everyone. Uh, I'm going to get Sarah Harton to come on up. She's in. Yeah, there she is. Hey, Sarah. Uh, if you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, over the Our Dangerous Vision series, uh, we've been taking some time to get to know people who are invested in the different um, ministry areas or focuses around church. And so we've been interviewing people about their role in, in MAG, in our mission, membership, maturity. And uh, now we get to talk to Sarah um, about ministry. And so, Sarah, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Who is Sarah Harton? Hi, um, I'm Sarah. I'm 37 and I'm married. <laughs> I should say it with pride, hey. I'm married <laughs> to an amazing bloke called Jerry. Um, and I've got two kids, uh, Matilda, she's six, and Alfred's five. So one in prep and one in kindy. And yep. most importantly, I suppose, I'm a servant of the Lord. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for sharing. I can second Jerry is an awesome bloke. Yeah, um, I reckon. But <laughs> what, do you, what do you get up to during the week? So you're, you are your mum. Um, is there anything else that takes up your week? Oh, yeah, I work um, three days a week mm. currently. So I'm a registered nurse. Um, specifically, I'm a clinical nurse and work in Indigenous health. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Which I love. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. And I know because you've shared this with me. I don't like, like, so Indigenous health, though, that's, you know, um, pas- a passion for you. Um, yeah. Do you want to share us a little bit about that, if that's right? Um, it's a passion for me because I do identify as being Indigenous, mm. which not a lot of people would think. Um, <laughs> but I suppose it's been a bit of a thing for me in my life um, yeah. in good. that I kind of, I don't know, kind of, well, I've just enough so that I kind of feel like I don't fit anywhere. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, like, not kind of black enough and not kind of white enough <laughs> and, you know. <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, the one place I've found acceptance is, mm. you know, here, in the Lord. Yeah, so, fantastic. I'm perfect. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that because, yeah, it's awesome. It's, it's, a, it's a great um, yeah, part of who you are and yeah. we love you. So, And so, now, you've been uh, using your gifts and talents and particularly who God's made you to be uh, in the life of church um, and particularly in ministry. Um, do you want to share us a little bit about what ministry you're involved in and, and how you kind of got involved in it? Yeah. I am the leader of the hospitality ministry um, and I suppose I didn't really ever want that for myself um, but I did complete three years of a chef apprenticeship (laughs) Um, so that (laughs) might have had something to do with uh, Ross maybe asking me to do that. So I don't know, do you want me to... I com- when yeah, I finished school, oh okay. no, well, when I finished <laughs> school, I finished three <laughs> years of a chef apprenticeship, um, which I didn't complete. So at mm. the time, I thought, nice, what an epic waste of time! Like, um, nice way to waste three years of your life. <laughs> um, but yeah, I didn't know at the time that God was upskilling me so that I could feed like loads of people later on, like His yeah. people. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. And so, uh, as I've gotten to know you, you've shared with me your journey of the kind of coming to discover and to own the gifts that God has given you um, and to believe that they're, they're good things and they've been given to you to use in the life of church. Like, what, what's that been like for you to, to believe and to own just the way that God has wired you and shaped you? Mm, that's big. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Um, I'm a pretty lazy person by nature um, and reluctant <laughs> and stubborn. So <laughs> I think um, it just, for me, had a lot to do with um, listening to God and mm. doing what I was told. Yeah. Um, yeah, when I was younger, I remember um, a visiting pastor um, preaching a sermon about... Um, little things and there's a parable in Matthew there was like a little mustard seed and how it could grow to be um, 
like the biggest tree in the garden and mm. then like this woman would use a little bit of yeast and yeah. how it could like spread through 60 pounds of flour and I just remember thinking maybe God was talking to me back then actually now that I mm. but um <laughs> but um I'm sure he was actually but mm. you know just in terms of um little things like I didn't have to be terribly smart or know everything or memorize the whole mm. bible I just needed to have faith yeah and we'd work out the rest later like and mm. I still am <laughs> working yeah. out the rest now oh it's a journey isn't it yeah hey? yeah. yeah absolutely and so yeah. um with that how has God used that journey and and your skills to actually draw you closer to Jesus as you're doing ministry um I think it's taught me a lot um in that I should um just make it less about myself mm. like it's not actually all about me <laughs> um it's it should be all about God and everything that we do should be for the glory of God and so if I have those skills how can I say no mm. really um yeah and just to, I think, trust because um, yeah, trust and just just doing what he says. Yeah, absolutely because you get, yeah, pushing it sounds the gifts yeah. God's given you. Yes, that's it. Yeah, trust that they're, they're given to you and he'll use them, hey. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, we would love to pray for you and celebrate you uh, with God, if that's right. And then, are you, you going to read the Bible for us? You might be able to read on the screen. I'm prepared. All right, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you uh, for how you have invaded Sarah's life with the love of your son. And that has brought fruit in that she believes in you and loves you. And Father wants to use the good things that you've given her to see your kingdom grow. Father, we pray that you would continue to uh, build Sarah up into the beauty and glory and goodness of Jesus. Father, that you'd strengthen her faith and the gifts you've given her. Father, that she might uh, be able to love and serve you and others um, in the likeness and example that Jesus did. Father, we pray that that would be driven by a deep sense of Jesus' love and service of Sarah. Father, we pray that you continue to use her to not only serve us, but uh, being a leader, uh, train and equip and get alongside other people as she helps them discover and, I suppose, I suppose flourish them in the gifts that you have given them. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> uh, so... We're going to read Romans 12, 1 to 8. I think it's 920 on the church, page 920 on the church Bibles. Uh, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, Do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully.
Thanks, Sarah. All right, keep your Bibles open there. And uh, to kick things off, I want you, to, want you to think about two things. When was a moment where you felt most useful? Right? moment when you felt most useful and a moment when you felt the most or useless. Right? Two things. Useful, useless. Got one for each, maybe? I want you to turn to the person next to you around you and I want you to share that. Whatever one you feel most comfortable sharing. Got 30 seconds. Remember last week it went quick, so get into it. 30 seconds. Let me jump in with a story of my own for you to make you feel a bit more comfortable. For me, there was a moment where I felt useless. It was summer holidays on the Sunshine Coast. Now, if you've ever been to the Sunshine Coast, summer holidays is pretty good. It's good because of the beach and the beach and, well, the beach. Uh, But there was another reason why it was good. Uh, The PGA Tour came to town. Silence. What is it? The PGA Tour, if you don't know, is the Professional Australian Golfing Tour. Now, it was exciting for me and my mate William, not because we were necessarily good at golf or for me that I even liked golf. It was good and exciting because it provided an awesome payday. Now, we would go down to the Hyatt Regency Coolum at the foot of the mountain or the massive rock. And we would approach the professional golfers and we would ask them if we could be their caddies. Now, my understanding of a caddy at the time was that you basically just carry a bag of golf clubs around and you'd do that all day, 18 holes, and you'd get paid 200 bucks per day. And so depending on how good your golfer was, you could do that for three days. That's pretty sweet payday for a teenager. It definitely uh, would beat uh, doing the gardening for $2 for the old lady Betty up the road. (laughs) I hated that. (laughs) $200 for carrying golf clubs. Done deal. Um, But the problem was there was a lot more uh, to caddying than I realised. And I would find that out in a pretty painful way. So being a caddy, it did involve carrying golf clubs around. But they're heavy, and so you need to be fit. And those golfers walk fast. The second thing is um, you need to know what golf clubs do what. <laughs> they're not just all sticks. They <laughs> you just pull one out, have a whack. No, you need to know what they do, and you need to kind of anticipate the golfer's needs so that when they need a club, you know which one to give them if they don't ask for one. So that's one. Uh, the third thing I realised was that when you're on the green, now when the ball finally gets there, you are to, when your golfer's putting for the hole, you need to hold the flag and you need to do this when the ball goes in. And so it actually goes in and doesn't hit the flag and bounce back. And but the funny thing is, golfers do funny, or caddies do funny things like this. When they're holding the flag, they'll have one leg up or they're like this. And the reason why is because you're not allowed to stand on other golfers' lines. A line is from where the ball lands on the green, the line to the hole. You do not stand on that line. And so hole after hole, I was exposed to my incompetence as a professional caddy. You see, this would be the first and last time I would ever be a professional caddy because I discovered hole after hole uh, that these guys walked fast and I could not keep up. I'd had no idea what golf clubs did what 
and I stood on golfers' lines. It was horrible. I didn't even make it halfway. I did not make nine holes until he replaced me with somebody else. Something that seemed so simple, (laughs) so easily exposed my uselessness or incompetency. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation like that. Have you? Uh, What is that like for you? What was that like for you? If you haven't, what would it be like for you to be in that moment, being replaced as a caddy because you were useless? How would that make you feel? What would that be like? Because for me, it felt horrible. It felt horrible because it made me feel useless and incompetent. In that moment as a teenage boy, my sense of usefulness as a human being was narrowed down into my usefulness as a caddy. And I sucked. The thing is, um, an Australian psychologist called Maureen Miner, she says that a person's sense of usefulness, of competence, is so key to feeling like you're a healthy person. She goes on to say that if you take away someone's sense of competence or usefulness, you are taking away a part of what it means to be human. And so no wonder it feels so bad. And if you're anything like me, if you uh, had an experience like that, you know the taste of feeling useless. But you also know the taste of wanting and longing to be useful, to be competent, to contribute in a meaningful way. So our experiences tell us that we are hardwired to be useful. But it's made difficult to feel a sense of usefulness because of the way we measure our usefulness. We measure our usefulness by what we do. At least the world tells us that our performance equals our usefulness. And sadly, this can even be our experience of our relationship with God or our place in church. That we feel or perceive that our sense of usefulness or competence is dependent on how or what I do for God or what I do in church. And so although this might be true for the world, how it measures our competence and usefulness, is it true about how God measures ours? Is this how God truly sees us? Does God measure my usefulness by my effort? Does God see me as valuable and useful? Is there a role for me to play in God's family? in the church. But as we start in the book of Romans, and particularly in chapter 12, Paul actually doesn't start there. He starts by not talking about what we do for God, but what God has actually done for us. And so, as you look at chapter 12, if if you've got your Bibles there, open them up. If not, the, the passages will come up on the screen as we go. Paul reminds us of the mercies of God. The mercy of God is what Paul has been talking about from chapter 1 to 11. And then from chapter 12 to 16, he kind of turns his thinking to what it means to live in light of God's mercy. And so pick up Romans 12, uh, verse 1 with me. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, by starting with God's mercy, Paul anchors what we do or what we are to do in what God has done. He does this by using this little word, therefore. This communicates the idea that what is going to follow in chapters 12 to 16 is inseparable from what came before it in chapters 1 to 11. But it's not just that it's inseparable, it's that what follows actually flows out of what Paul has just been talking about, the mercy of God. And Paul explains the mercies of God in chapters 1 to 11 as being this, that God has made us in his image. And although that we have chosen to reject and to resist living in that image, 
He has shown us mercy by giving us what we don't deserve for rejecting and resisting Him. That's our sin. He doesn't uh, hold the right penalty for our sin on us. He withholds the penalty for our sin. But He treats us as we don't deserve. He shows us grace by giving us Jesus who would go to the cross and take the right penalty that we deserve for rejecting and resisting God's image and the way we are to live in that image. Jesus takes our penalty. When we believe in Him and belong to Him, we are adopted into God's family. We become God's treasured children and loved children where we are given the spirit of adoption. We cry out, Abba, Father. And this changes things, Paul says. Paul uses the words, I urge you or I appeal to you. Living in awareness of God's mercy and grace to us impacts our day-to-day life. Well, at least it should anyways. The kind of life Paul envisions is in verse 2. And it does sound a bit odd, so let's have a look at it. Verse 2. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So what is Paul getting at here? Paul is picking up on this idea of an Old Testament uh, religious ritual where people would bring their animals to be sacrificed for their forgiveness of sin. But as we've just heard in Romans 1 to 11, Jesus is that sacrifice for us once and for all. We do not need to give sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. So he can't be talking about that kind of sacrifice. But the Old Testament rituals had another kind of sacrifice where you would offer um, an animal that would actually display your complete devotion to God. And so this is what Paul has in mind. A sacrifice that is living. Our lives that we live are to show that we are 100% wholeheartedly, completely devoted to God. To live day by day in alignment with who God knows us to be. And that is holy, set apart, and pleasing to Him. Do you know, in Jesus, because of what He did, you are set apart for Him, and that you are pleasing to him. But he goes on to say that this is then a true and proper worship. This is what it means to walk in relationship with God day by day. And because of who God knows us to be in Jesus, this, like we said, it changes us. It transforms who we are and what we do. In view of God's mercy, Paul is saying, in view of God's mercy to you and Jesus, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By keeping the mercies of God in your mind's eye, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His perfect, good, pleasing will. So what does this have to do with being useful? What God is showing us here is that he does not measure your usefulness by what you do for him. Paul does not draw a direct line between who we are, our value and usefulness and competence, to what we do. Paul does draw a a, a straight line. He does draw a direct connection between who we are in Christ and who God knows us to be in Jesus and our usefulness and competence. When God's grace and mercy invades our life, Paul says at least 10 things happen, if not more. You are redeemed. You are freed from sin and death. You are adopted as a child of God. You are loved by God. You are declared to be right with God in His eyes. God is your Father and He loves you. He values you. The Son is with you. The Spirit is in you. 
Our usefulness is determined by who we are in Jesus, not by what we do for him. The value and meaningfulness of your contribution is not measured by your effectiveness at it, but by who you are as you do it. God anchors our usefulness in who we are in Jesus, not by what we do. And so the question is, do we, do you anchor your sense of usefulness and competence in who you are in Christ? Or do you let your sense of usefulness and competence be defined by, measured by, determined by your perception of how good you are or how effective you are or what other people might say about that. Our usefulness comes from who we are made to be and who God rescues us then to be in Jesus. And so then let's continue to think about how does God's mercy and grace help us discover then our contribution and usefulness. Because uh, our usefulness, because it is directly tied to who God knows us to be and not what we do, this keeps us from making two mistakes or thinking of too much of ourselves or thinking too little of ourselves. As we start to think about our usefulness, it helps us from falling into those two traps, thinking too much of ourselves and thinking too little of ourselves. Notice what Paul says in verse 3. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but think of yourselves with sober judgment. Paul continues to say, in other words, think of yourselves in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Paul is saying, you have all been given saving faith in Christ. That is what you are measured by. So, having said that, we all share the same relationship and position in relationship with God. He then goes on to say, yet we each have different abilities and gifts and ways that we participate in the life of God's family and church. We could say that there is unity and diversity. Take a moment, look around this room. Look around this room, heads turning, turning around, yeah? Or even just feel it, sense it. As we are here in unity. We are here in unity as, as disciples of Jesus, as God's children. Now, each of you, though, are unique. You are you. Diversity. We are one but we are individuals as well. And this is what Paul goes on to say in verse 4. And he uses a picture for us to get our heads around this. He uses this idea of a body. Now, why does Paul use a picture of a body? Well, let's think about it for a second. When you think about your body, or if I asked you about your body, you would say, or speak in a way that would tell me it is a body, my body. It is a singular thing. Right, But if I asked you then to describe your body, you would start to use language that suggests there's more to your body than just being one thing. You have a head, hair, brown hair, blue eyes. Um, I don't know, I was going to say, my fat fingers. <laughs> um, long legs, short legs, big feet, small feet, big ears, small ears. When we talk about our bodies, we know that it is one, yet it is made up of different parts. And that each part has a place to play, has a role to play. That no one is actually better than the other. That each part of our body plays its role in keeping the whole body healthy. You take one away, the body suffers. For the body to function, all parts need to be playing their part. Just listen to what Paul says 
and verse 4. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. He then makes his point in verses 5 and 6. So, in Christ we, though many, form one body, each member belonging to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace that God has given to each of us. God has made us one body in Jesus. He has rescued each of us, though, as members of that body with different gifts to have a role and to play that role. And so we discover our unique God-given contribution when we slow down to appreciate this, when we slow down to appreciate that God has made me and rescued me, when we realise this, we are able to rediscover the unique way God has wired you and each of us to love Him and to serve others. God has made you and rescued you. He has used people, events, experiences as instruments in His hand to form your heart and life. God has... God has and he does this over a lifetime, actively shaping who you are, your character and your skills. You need to know that God has made you. He has created you in a unique way. You were born. We could think of this along the lines of our natural strengths. There are some things that just come second, or not second nature, uh, just naturally to you. You don't have to try these are gifts from God. Now let me sh- let me share a story of what this journey has been like for me. Now growing up, well, I didn't grow up in a Christian family, but when I became a Christian, I already had a deep sense of my uselessness. That's me. Becoming a Christian though, I began to realize more and more that oh, I am even more flawed than I realized. I am more broken than I once thought. In our camp, our theological camp, to throw some big words out there, being reformed in our theology, we believe that sin taints every part of who we are. And for me, in my life, that tempted to be overemphasized, right? It seems to be one of the only things you do hear about. And even if you're not a Christian, that might be your impression of church, of Christians, But the thing is, there is more to what the Bible says about who we are than that. And the problem is that we do not emphasise, rightly emphasise, the other parts of who we are. For me, I came uh, to realise that although I understood that in my head, I hadn't yet experienced that in my heart, to actually believe and to own that the way God made me and wired me and shaped me is good. I wonder if you'd be able to say that this morning. The way God has shaped you, made you, is good. Not just know it in your head, but to feel it deeply in your heart. I came to realise that my story and my life, the good, the bad, the ugly, would actually be used by God. So let's think about then how God has shaped us. God has filled our life with stories, with people, life events, experiences, some good and some difficult, and he has used all of those to shape you. So the question isn't, has God shaped me? The question is, how has God shaped you? We could think of this along the lines of you know, our learned strengths, those things that come to be second nature, because we've learned them. Now, thinking about the way God has used your story, used your life, used the people in it, the experiences that you've experienced to shape you, could be pretty difficult. You know, it's diffi- it has been difficult for me. And so let me just share another story of what this has been like for me. Uh, at our leader training night, a few, oh, probably, I don't know how long ago it was. At our last leader training night, I shared a story of a really hard experience for me in school. 
I was never good at school. I was never an academic kind of kid. I loved rugby league. I loved being with my mates. Uh, and, and so I was often always needing support um, from the support teachers. And so this experience started happening from quite early on when I was in primary school. And I have this vivid memory of sitting in the support classroom with a teacher in year four. She was trying to help me grow in my reading, but I just wasn't getting it. And so frustratedly, she stood up and just went, oh, why don't you get this? In that moment, I was flooded with a sense of absolute uselessness. In that moment, what I needed was not to have someone tell me or get frustrated at me because I wasn't reading or growing in my reading. What I needed was someone to stop and connect and understand me and support me through the divorce that my parents were going through at home. In that moment, I felt completely disconnected, completely misunderstood, and completely unsupported. Now, God has used that experience in my life to grow a deep value for supporting others by connecting and understanding them. Through a hard experience like that, God has actually used that to shape in me a deep desire, conviction that God willing, He will continue to use and will use through me in my life. We have both been made, shaped, and rescued by Jesus to rediscover the unique way that He has wired us and made us to love Him and to be used by Him. And to discover that the purpose for the, our passions, our personalities and our skills is uh, to serve God and others. To find that we express those primarily in the way we serve others. It is other person centred. The parts of the body exist for the other parts of the body. We play our part for the sake of others. You know, through our Dangerous Vision series, we've been um, using this picture to help us understand more of this as, as the difference between a cruise ship and a lifeboat. Now, when you're on a cruise ship, you are there to be served. The existence of other people are there to serve you. You kick back on your deck chair, in your swimmers, by the pool, you have the sun beating down on you, and people bring you drinks. They bring you food. I've never been on a cruise ship, so I can't actually speak to exactly what that's like, but that's my, my impression of what happens on a cruise ship. You are served. You are not on that ship. You are not paying thousands of dollars to serve others. You are paying so that you get served. It is completely different to being on a lifeboat. Your existence on that lifeboat is to serve others. Everyone on a lifeboat is hands on deck. You play your part. If you're driving, you drive. If you're on the spotlight, you point the spotlight. If you're on throwing uh, the life support out, you throw it out. It's all hands on deck. Not to be served, but to serve others and so that you would save lives. If you are sitting on a lifeboat in a deck chair and I saw you doing that, man, you'd be in the water. <laughs> I might take you back to when I kicked you off. And it's completely different. Completely different. At Southside, we are a lifeboat, not a cruise ship. We are a lifeboat because we recognise and we understand the spiritual realities that shape our world, that God has made us to live in relationship with him and we have resisted and rejected that and we are on a one-way trajectory to spending eternity without him. 
and God has made us, he has rescued us to use our gifts to see as many people as we can come to know and belong to Jesus. That is why we exist. That is why we are here, to display the goodness, the beauty, the glory, the grace of Jesus so that others might come to know the love of the Father and be welcomed into his family. That is what it means to be on a lifeboat. That's what it means to be here at Southside. That's what it means to be involved in the work of ministry. And so the question is then, how do we at Southside actually get alongside you in discovering and directing and building your life around the way God has wired and has made you? So come with me and let's look at uh, the final verses that Paul uh, um, says in verses 6 to 8. We want you to use your gifts to do it, Paul says. Just feel the impact of this. If uh, If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, give encouragement. If it is to give, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to uh, show mercy, do it cheerfully. Paul doesn't give us an exhaustive list of gifts and skills, but one thing is very, very, very clear from Paul. Use your gifts. Use them. Do it. If you are willing and able and skilled to do it, do it, use it. If you can support kids, church, teachers, join the kids' church team. If you could clean toilets and vacuum, join uh, the cleaning team. If you can learn to make coffee, join the coffee team. If you can mow grass, join the yard team. If you are good at organising, join the admin team. If you are good with people, join the welcoming team. Use your gifts. God has made you, shaped you and rescued you so that you would use the gifts he has given you. So one thing is crystal clear. God has made you and rescued you to use your gifts. So how does this play out in the life of church? There are two, two ways this plays out and it's captured in our core ministry commitments. The core uh, ministry commitment is that we would seek to minister to one another. And that happens, and we see this happening in kind of two, two ways, at least two ways, okay? At least these two ways. By sacrificially using your time, talent, and treasure to serve the people and the ministry of Southside. Secondly, to be an active member of a ministry team in which um, you get to regularly pursue greatness by serving others. Now, we're going to finish off by just looking at that second point and notice two things. What is ministry teams and what does pursuing greatness look like? First, let's talk ministry teams. At Southside, serving happens through belonging to or joining a ministry team. Ministry serving functions in the context of ministry teams. We don't do rosters because rosters... They are designed to focus on tasks. Teams are designed to be a group of people working together to achieve a common goal. At Southside, our ministries, our M's, our five M's, are teams that work to the common goal of making and growing disciples of Jesus. Each of the five ministry focuses have teams within them and they are groups of people working together to focus on the common goal of magnification, mission, membership, maturity and ministry so that we would reach our common goal of making and growing disciples. Ministry teams honour the reality that God has actually given each of us gifts to use as co-workers and partners in serving God Ministry teams recognise and respect that God has gifted all people to contribute. That means ministry teams are not, uh, they don't have one role, they have many roles. For example, the hospitality team. It has a common goal of creating space for people to have conversations about Jesus by providing some nice food and drinks. In that, 
people, make food. In that, people set up, come early, stay late, set up, pack up, vacuum, wash dishes. See, it's a common goal with many roles. Teams also provide a space for us to continue to grow as disciples together, as we serve and do life together. Teams are a place for friendship, for encouragement and for fun. Teams ultimately will have a far greater impact than one person will. That's why at Southside we are committed to organising our serving in ministry teams and not rosters. So, you know, we would love to see everyone here participate in a ministry team to use your gifts by joining a ministry team. Let's look at the the last um, idea there, to pursue greatness by serving others. Now, what is this idea getting at? It's getting at a few things. Firstly, it is getting at the fact that we are hardwired for greatness. We are made to... We are made in the image of God. You are made to be like God. I'm sorry, there is nothing better and greater than that. Nothing. We pursue greatness because God made us for greatness, to be like Him. We are made to reflect Him. And so we want you to flourish in discovering that for yourself as we do that together. Uh, But it's also getting the fact that this is a journey uh, that this is a pursuit. This, it, there is room to grow. Just because you have gifts, just because God's made you and skilled you, it still doesn't mean that we know how to be as effective as we can be in using them. So it's an invitation to jump on the journey of developing and growing in the gifts God's given you. You can think about uh, this. Um, we'll come back to that. The third thing, and we'll, I'll tell, we'll have a bit of a story, and I'll get you to ask, I'm going to ask you another question, so get ready. The third thing is that it's, by, it's defined by serving others. Greatness is defined by how you serve others. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 45, He came not to be served, but to serve by giving His life for others. That defines greatness. A number of times Jesus echoes that throughout the Gospels. We are here not to be served, but to serve. Now, I want, to th- I want you to think about the last time you were, not the last time, think about a hospital that you've been at recently. It might not be the last time, but whatever visit to a hospital that jumps to your mind, I want you to think about that. And I want you to tell the person next to you what hospital you last visited. Don't tell them why, it's okay. Just, what hospital? Where did you last go? Yep, doing it, cool. All right, last, one of the last visits uh, to a hospital that I was at uh, was when Hosea was born. Now, during the birthing process, don't worry, I'm not going to share any gross details, the nurse, Tanya, uh, the midwife Tanya, not our Tanya, the midwife, but a different Tanya midwife, she came in and was like, hey, look, we've got a student outside, Um, would you be okay if they came in and joined uh, joined the process. And I'm like, yeah, sure. And she just said thank you in that moment because it's, it's so great that students are welcomed into that space so they can grow, so they can develop in the gifts that they have, so they can uh, become good professional healthcare workers. And, you know, anyways, it was good. Um, you know... Some hospitals, like the Royal Brisbane, for example, they show you that they are committed to raising up and developing their students so that they would become good healthcare workers. Now, for example, my mum, she is a nurse and she works at a hospital that really makes their mark in communicating that. The name of their hospital is the Sunshine Coast University Hospital. When you go to a hospital like that, you know two things. They are deeply committed to providing you with good healthcare but they're also deeply committed to developing others in becoming good healthcare workers. When you go to a training hospital like that, you do expect to see doctors, nurses and specialists walking the halls, being in rooms 
with students in tow. It shows that our healthcare system does care at providing and growing up good professional healthcare workers who will work on our bodies. Now, if our healthcare system values how people rightly, effectively care for bodies, how much more should we as a church care about growing and developing and training disciples of Jesus who care for each other's spiritual eternity, our spiritual souls? At Southside, we are deeply committed to not just being a church that provides spiritual health. We want to be a church that actually sees people grow and develop and being effective at raising and making disciples of Jesus. And so being a part of a ministry team means joining us in the journey of growing and becoming more effective at using the gifts that God's given us, of becoming more like Jesus. Because God has rescued, made you, he has shaped you and he has rescued you to rediscover the unique way he has wired you so that you might make and grow disciples. That's what ministry is all about. I'm going to pray for us now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to sit here knowing that who you are is good and pleasing and perfect. That you are good, you are glorious, you are great and you are gracious. And that you've made us in your image to be like you, to become like you. And that that is good and that that is pleasing, that that is perfect. Father, we pray that your grace would penetrate our hearts deeper, that we would actually believe this. That you would give us insight and wisdom into how you have shaped us through our life, how you have used the good and the hard moments to shape in us passions, personalities, desires, gifts that you would seek to redeem and to use to bring life, to see people become disciples and grow as disciples of Jesus. Father, we pray deeply that you would give us this grace, that we might have uh, the guts to even try to use and to do the things that you have called us to do, to use the gifts you've given us. Father, we thank you that Lord gives us this guts of knowing that even our effectiveness, even how well we do it, doesn't determine our usefulness because it's who we are in your son Jesus that is the measure of that. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.